Na mihi nui, na mihi araha ki te whanau o te riki kua hui mai nei ki tēnei whare te ata nei. He whare tino ata hua. A beautiful house, a beautiful new house for you. A great facility to share. Na mihi i rotu e te araha me te kaha. Te tumanako o te kaihanga ihu kraiti. Greetings to you all, the family of God here together today. It's a, a real privilege and a joy uh, to be back in Parklands and to share with you uh, and to see these wonderful new facilities that you've got uh, in your service of the kingdom. So, uh, so thank you for your welcome uh, here today. Oh, I better put these on as well. Uh, I want to get straight into it. Um, I'm in a fortunate position where uh, I'm able to do lots of reading and, uh, and, and study and discovering, and then opportunities like this come along now and again where I can share some of what I've been learning. So that's what today is, and, and I, um, this is stuff that I've been thinking about and, uh, and working on for a long time, but particularly in recent months, and so uh, thank you for the opportunity to share with you. And I'd like to start by reading you a rather unusual passage for a Sunday morning. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 18, just the first few verses, the whole chapter is a denunciation of Babylon. Now Babylon had happened long earlier than when Revelation was written. Uh, But as I'll talk about in a little while, uh, Babylon was code for something else. And, uh, and, and hopefully in the next half hour or more, you'll understand uh, why I chose this passage, okay? Uh, and so here it goes. What I'm going to do is ask, uh, there's three screens, so if somebody could read the first one, and somebody else in a loud voice read the second one, and then the third one, okay? So who wants to take the first one? Thank you. Thank you. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is the backstory to a whole load of the Bible stories with which I'm familiar, and, and you may well be very familiar with too. You know, Moses in the bulrushes, Daniel in the lion's den. You've got a quote from Esther here, a great quote. The story of Esther, uh, the whole of the New Testament, Jonah and the whale, all the stories of Jesus. There's a backdrop to what's going on, and the backdrop is that in the background, and, and sometimes not so far back, there's a powerful, often brutal empire that's in control, that's in charge of what's going on. And, and empires come and go, but that's the backdrop. Always there, there's an empire that wants things done its way. So for people in Bible times, and the same for us now, we live in a world which loves and serves other gods, focuses on control and power for itself. 
And that's the great challenge which faces us as God's people. We're called to be his in a world that doesn't follow him. Yeah? And that's the story of so many situations in the Bible. It's our story too. So what I want to do this morning, two parts. First up, I'd like to look at some of the stories of the Bible and the context in which those things happen. Just a a brief look at two or three empires. And then I want to use those stories as a springboard for us to consider our relationship to the world that we live in. And I believe we live in the shadow of an empire. And I think this is really important for us, but it's commonly neglected. I think it's an important consideration, particularly for those of us who say we follow Jesus. And we've just been singing some wonderful songs, haven't we? Jesus is my king. That's a statement that says I don't belong to this world. I'm his. So this is the the context in which we live. So so what's an empire? Here's Brian Zahn's uh, definition of it. Empires are rich and powerful nations that in their arrogant assumption of a divine right to rule the nations and their conceited claim of possessing a manifest destiny to shape history intrude upon the sovereignty of God. God loves nations, but he's not so keen on empires because they're trying to take his place. For example, let's have a look at the Egyptian Empire. You all know how amazing the Egyptian Empire was. It's great monuments, the pyramids, the sphinx, the various temples, magnificent temples along the River Nile. You know about its wealth, its art, its culture, its power. All that stuff still fascinates people. In its heyday, Egypt was rich beyond belief. It was proud, it was arrogant, it was self-assured, self-satisfied, self-confident. Here's their boast, the quote from Ezekiel. You say, this is uh, quoting Pharaoh, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. That's pretty arrogant, don't you think? (laughs) Yeah, that's right up there. They had technology and skill. They had knowledge and understanding. They had military might. And they had gods who in their minds were were far superior to any other god that any other nation had. And they felt, of course, that they had the proof. They could say, look at us and our success, our wealth, our prosperity. Look at what our gods have done for us. And then look at you, you know, you miserable little people. What have your gods done for you? You know, proof, our gods are the best. I haven't got time to explain how it happened, but God's people, the Israelites, became slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh ruthlessly puts the needs of production and the demands of the economy over and above the needs of the people, especially the poor. And the slave labour force get the worst end of the stick. That's what always happens in empires. And eventually the slaves cry out to God in their distress, and God hears them, and he sends Moses with a message for Pharaoh. And the message to Pharaoh is, just imagine these two little Israelite fellows representing the slaves in the palace, and they stand before Pharaoh, and they says, God says, let the people go. Set your workforce free. Liberate them. And what does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let the people go? This God of the slaves, if it was any good, they wouldn't be slaves. Isn't that what Pharaoh's saying? If this God had strength and power, his people wouldn't be slaves. And so Pharaoh says no. However, when the dust settles after a long and drawn-out confrontation, God's people are free. The slaves are slaves no longer. And the God of the slaves is victorious. And Egypt is defeated. 
There's a pattern here which unfolds all the way through Scripture. In every confrontation with an empire, there's always a Moses, a person, a human agent who calls God's people to imagine a new reality, to see things differently, themselves and the world and God at work in it. And there's always a pharaoh. In one guise or another, there's always someone, some nation, some force, some power seeking to reduce God's people to pawns in the production of the empire. And there's always Yahweh, there's always God, who says, let my people go. Let them go that they can worship me. Let them go that they can serve me. Let them go that they can form a new community under me, a community of my people. So that's Egypt. Let's turn our attention now quickly to the Babylonian Empire. There's a few pictures here, artist impression of what it might have looked like. Under its king Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon became the largest city in the world, the world centre of trade and business. The city was beautiful. Its hanging gardens were known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And the beautiful gate has been reconstructed in the Berlin Museum. And uh, incredibly impressive it is. Militarily, Babylon was in a league of its own. Its armies were ruthless and all-conquering. Anyone that knew anything about them feared them. And Babylon, of course, was the place to be. It was where it was all happening. It was buzzing with activity. People from all over the place were coming and going. They were doing deals. They were making money. They were getting ahead. And they were enjoying the benefits of being in the center of the known world. And the boast of Babylon is recorded in Isaiah 47. And here it is. You say to yourself, I am and there is no one beside me, none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. I'm entitled to the good life, and nothing's going to go wrong with me because I am Babylon. Yeah? And it was into that world. Again, God's people were taken in exile, and uh, they were taken to that strange and powerful, a proud and dangerous city as prisoners. And uh, if you know your old pop songs, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, it's Psalm 127, I think it is, uh, a piece of scripture. And it's a lament, actually, a motete, a song of sadness, these exiles in Babylon, this strange place, uh, remembering uh, Jerusalem. Let's look at New Testament times now. New Testament believers had a very powerful empire to contend with, and that was Rome. And you probably know quite a bit about the Romans, their power, their military expertise and dominance, their wealth and extravagance, and eventually their decadence and their demise. And the whole of the New Testament was written in the shadow of Roman power and control. Rome ran the show. They were in charge, and they were cruel and brutal and putting down anybody that was brave enough to disagree with them, any threat to their empire. And some of the Jewish people, for reasons of the, to get their own benefit, they sided with Rome. People like Herod in cahoots with the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people are proud people. They hated the situation. They hated being subservient to their uh, captors, uh, invaders, but they could do nothing. They were powerless against the might of Rome. And one day some uh, religious leaders trying to jab trap Jesus came up to him and said should we pay taxes to Rome 
And Jesus gave a very interesting answer. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Showed them a coin. There's Caesar's picture. Give him that. And, and that's the dance that we live. Give to the empire that we live in what is right and proper, accommodate it, appreciate it, but also give to God what is God's. It's a dance that the believers then lived, and it's one that we live now. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the one we read from, Romans discussed and reflected upon. But because it's very dangerous to say nasty things about uh, the empire that you're in, they didn't name Rome, they called it Babylon instead. It was a piece of code. And so Revelation 18 was written about Rome, but applies to all empires. And you know the story, it wasn't long before Christians were fed to lions for sport by the Roman Empire and abused in many other ways. And the reason? Because they refused to give allegiance to Caesar as Lord. Bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord, and then you can worship any other god you feel like on the side. No, said the Christians. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that's how Christians are treated in many countries around the world today, isn't it? It's not just back then, but that's happening in, in a variety of places today. And it's what might be our experience one day or those who follow on after us so what about us here and now I want to have a look for a moment at our own country it's easy to imagine that empires did something that happens in other parts of the world other times but not down here in little old Kiwi land you know a couple of islands and a few smaller ones the bottom of a big ocean a long way from anywhere the reality is very different empire is important in this nation Dave Dobbin has a beautiful song, Welcome Home, and in it he sings the line, The Empire is Fading by the Day. Well, that's true now, but it wasn't a while ago. The British Empire was the dominant world force in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And my lovely old grandfather, he was a veteran of World War, II, uh, World War I, he used to break out in song every now and again just while he was washing the dishes or peeling the spuds. And I'm not going to sing it to you because I can't sing. But he would sing, Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. Now that's a song of empire, isn't it? The British Empire was enjoying its heyday when Captain Cook was sent to the Southern Ocean on a scientific mission to observe the transit of Venus. That was the... The, the public reason for the trip, but there was a hidden one as well, a secret mission to search, out, to search out the fabled land in the south, the southern continent, that was full of riches and was going to make the empire even greater. The empire was doing what empires always do, seeking to expand. It wanted the benefit of new discoveries, new wealth and resources for itself. And Cook was a symbol of the power of that empire. And you know the story of his arrival here in 1769 and the subsequent arrival of sealers and whalers and missionaries and settlers. And the majority of these people were British citizens. And so like it or not, the British Empire soon became entangled in the affairs of this land and its people, both the Tangata Whenua and all the new settlers and newcomers. And uh, I'd like to quote Dr. Claudia Oranger, a great New Zealand historian. She's observed that the initial plans of a Māori New Zealand that somehow accommodated the European settlers was soon replaced with a settler New Zealand that would somehow retain a place for Māori. And the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, and it was uh, a win for justice and fairness. 
But the subsequent treatment of the treaty was a clear win for the power of empire. Here's a little story. Sir James Prendergast was the Chief Justice in New Zealand in 1875 to 1899. In a ruling about some land that was under dispute, the Wee Parata versus Bishop of Wellington case, this is what he said about the Treaty of Waitangi. He said it was a worthless document because it had been signed between a civilised nation and a group of savages who were not capable of signing a treaty. Since the treaty had not been incorporated into domestic law, it was a simple nullity. And this decision established a legal precedent of great significance. It influenced decision-making on Treaty of Waitangi issues for many decades, and it was used to justify the alienation of huge tracts of Māori land. So my point here is it's not to give you a history lesson, but, but to explain how empire has impacted on our lives, and we live with the consequence of what's gone on even here in, in this little piece of God's earth. So make no mistake, empire is significant for us in the land that we live in, and it hasn't all been good. Now, what about empires in our time right now? Well, there's three that I could name easily. First up, China. And if you don't think they're an empire, talk to the Uyghur people or some of the pro-democracy folks in, uh, in Hong Kong. And Russia's a China, and you know they don't like their enemies get hit with Novichok and you know that nerve agent and what happened in Crimea. But I don't want to talk about them. The empire that I want to talk about this morning that we can briefly consider is the one that impacts us the most in this country every day, culturally, economically, politically, and even spiritually. And it's what I'm calling the Western cultural empire. And the flagship of this empire is the United States of America, but it's much bigger than just them alone. And we're caught up in this empire. Its values, its priorities, its goals, its aspirations, those are ours as well. I remember one time some years ago when I was a teacher in Ruatoria uh, at Nata Memorial College, and the uh, principal, a Māori man named Mr. Reedy, complained to me one day. I was the only Pākehā in the whole place. He said, you know, the, the Pākehā songs and culture and values that our kids are, are singing and reading and so on, this is not doing them any good at all. And he was blaming me for it. <laughs> And I was really pleased to be able to say to him, Amster, I'm totally with you. This is not Pākehā stuff. This is much bigger than that. And I'm in complete agreement about the negative influence of so much of what is coming at our young people uh, through all the different media um, that are around. I wholeheartedly agreed with him. Uh, and uh, just to give you a little quick insight to the power of this empire. I want to show you a painting that was painted back in 1872. It's a very influential picture, which summarizes a lot of what I'm uh, talking about. The picture's called American Progress. Here we go. And uh, she looks like an angel of light, doesn't she? But she's not, most definitely not. The woman is Columbia. She's white, of course, and uh, and on her forehead, you can't see it there, but there's a, a thing around, she's got the star of empire on her forehead. And she's moving from the dark, to, into the dark from the light. She's bringing the light with her as the, the kind of picture. And she's leading white settlers uh, who are going west, on, some on foot, some on horseback. They're coming in stagecoaches and on trains and so on. And on one hand, she's got telegraph wire, and she's bringing modern technology and communications with her. And on the other hand, she's got some school books 
and she's bringing education and knowledge uh, and wisdom with her. And as she goes west, you can see she's scattering people. The indigenous people have been scattered. A herd of buffalo are running for their lives. A bear is running away in the face of these oncoming settlers. And this painting ties in with an ideology called Manifest Destiny, which had some credence among many people. The ideology included a belief in the inherent superiority of white people and justified extreme measures to clear the indigenous population from the land, including forced removal and extermination. And those kind of ideas impacted our country as well. Now, as I say, my intention this morning is not to give you a history lesson. Rather, I hope and pray that I can give you a window into our world as it really is all around us. Because you see, you know we are surrounded, immersed like a fishes in water in the culture of our times. And it influences us in seen and unseen ways. It seeks to shape and massage our feelings and our way of thinking. I like that quote this morning. You know, we, what we think shapes how we live. And that's so true. And if we don't see and understand what's going on around about us, we're inevitably doomed to just going with the flow. We'll be pawns in its game. So I want to give you a quick overview of empires. First of all, the attraction of empire. Empires offer people prosperity, social advancement, security, the good life, join the in crowd. You know, be part of the people who are winning and get ahead, not the losers. Be on the side of the rich and the powerful. Belonging to a wealthy nation that's in control and has power is a very attractive proposition. It feels good, and it feels a lot better than being part of the losers. And empires do offer benefits. In New Testament times, the Roman Empire maintained a kind of peace. It was maintained by the force of military might and power and cruelty, but it, there was a peace, and they built roads, and they maintained communications. There was safe travel, and these things were all vital for Paul and his friends as they went on their missionary journeys, for example. And the world that we live in, the country we live in, here, affords us many benefits, doesn't it? And for those, it's right and proper to be very grateful and thankful. However, the attraction of empire is seductive. It can be like a drug which captures its consumers. In that passage from Revelation that talks about all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of empire. Empires excel at self-congratulation, pride and arrogance. The message is loud and clear. There's no life outside the empire. Be part of it. But there's another side to empires. An empire's wealth and luxury didn't just happen. It came from somewhere. If they've got a benefit, somebody else has got a loss. Somebody's paid the price, been ripped off, oppressed. Have you ever wandered around Paris or London and wondered where all the, the magnificent wealth came from to build the fantastic buildings in those cities? You know, I wandered, went on a trip around Dunedin one time and was shocked to see roads and buildings and stone walls that had been built by Māori prisoners who had never even had a fair trial but had been shipped down there, locked up in a cave at night and worked and numbers of them died. And here in Christchurch, across in Kashmir, there were, in the early days, there were Indians who were brought here, virtually slaves, who worked to help build our city. It's a bit frightening, really. There's another side to empires. Empires like, in fact, they usually demand lots of cheap labour. And the cheaper, the better. And of course, slave labour is as cheap as it can get. Empires devour the poor. 
The environment is seen as a servant of empire. Environmental damage is seen as acceptable if the needs of the empire are being met. Empires like to have enemies. You know, an enemy is really useful because you can gather people around and say, we are all united in our hatred of this enemy. And since our enemy is really bad and dangerous, you don't mind paying lots of taxes so that we can have the biggest army around to fight the, you know, empires like enemies in that kind of way. And empires always like to feel that they are the strongest military power around. And religion is used by empires. The empire will make a big thing of its gods. That was something that all those empires in the Bible had in common. They all had their gods. Uh, but in actual fact, they didn't serve their gods. Their gods served them. They used their gods as part of building uh, their empire. Their gods were tools of their control. Their gods were not free agents. God, Yahweh, is totally free. We do not manage God. We do not control God. God is always free, unhindered, unfettered by anyone or anything, and able to do what God wants to do. Empires like to control their gods and make them servants of what's going on. They like to manage God, domesticate God, or even silence God. And you know what? It can never be done. A few more quick points about empires. Empires are good at denial and forgetting. Inconvenient truths, histories that we don't really like are, are quickly forgotten, brushed aside. Empires always find it easy to justify violence against other nations or even against their own people if it's seen in the interests of the empire. Empires don't do mercy and grief and loss. They gloss over human suffering. Instead, they come up with depersonalised terms like units of labour and collateral damage. Empires don't do care and compassion unless they can see some kind of payback for them. And empires encourage self-indulgence and greed. An empire is motivated first and foremost by self-interest. What's in our national interest? That's what we're going to do. And if that's the way the empire works, then that's the way the people tend to work. Very often in an empire, greed and selfishness are celebrated as success. And the last thing about empires, I think, yeah, empires don't learn the lessons of history. That's why one empire after another rises and then falls. And it's usually the same kinds of things that bring every empire down. It's their own arrogance and independence, their self-indulgence, greed and pride. Brings about their end. Contrast, if you will, the kingdom of God and how totally different it is. Before we move on, though, one more empire to mention, and this is a sad story. Solomon became king over Israel after his father David. And he started out very well, if you know the story. But if you know the beginning, you also know the end, and he finished very badly. He was very successful. He turned the nation of Israel into an empire. He developed a powerful army. He defeated other nations. He extended the nation's territory. And at the same time, he and the nation became very famous and fabulously wealthy. Uh, he had a bit of a problem with sex. He married 700 wives, and he had a few hundred extras on the side. Work that one out. Uh, and he introduced false gods. All these women he brought in, they brought their gods, and, and so they worshipped God, and, and they worshipped all these other gods as well. And some people did well in this regime, but they were doing well on the backs of others. Many of the people were milked dry by Solomon's empire. Quite likely some of them, his own people, became his slaves. When a nation is famous and affluent, though, an emphasis on freedom and justice is hard to maintain. Solomon's story 
It was a really sad one. And the outcome, God saw what was going on. And there were serious consequences. You know, I think the same kind of thing can happen to us in church. Church can be turned into an empire, a local church, or a family, a community of churches can become, if things go wrong, turned into somebody's little personal private empire. Uh, and people get used for the name and the prosperity of the church. For the Jewish people who sat by the rivers in Babylon, Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the city that they longed for, they loved. It was the city of freedom and blessing. It was the seat of God's deep promise of his presence and his well-being. Babylon, where where they were, was the city of captivity and exile, and they longed for Jerusalem. And they thought that in Jerusalem we'll be safe. However, God was willing to deal to Jerusalem as he saw fit, and when when they turned their hearts against him and followed other gods, then there were consequences for that. And uh, and I think those are salutary things that we need to to be aware of. Uh, Jeremiah said that Jerusalem had become like Sodom and Gomorrah to God. And if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what was their sin? Ezekiel tells us, now this was the sin of Sodom. She was arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and she did not help the poor and needy. That was the sin of Sodom. Not what people sometimes think. The rest of it wasn't good either. But that's an important thing. J- Jerusalem suffered the consequences of self-indulgent choices of the people. They weren't entitled to immunity of the consequences of their choices, and nor are we. Two more quick comments before I move on about the empire. God's purposes are never fulfilled by trying to cozy up to the empire and using its wealth and power for the kingdom. The two don't fit. They're oil and water. We can't be part of the kingdom and use it for the purposes of God, no matter how good your intentions are. And, and my last little point is, you know, we can, each of us, personally and privately, become our own little empire. I can try to be the king in my world and to manage everybody around me and control them and manipulate them and use them for my benefit. A kingdom of an empire of one. And it's not good. Uh, That's not the way that God wants us to live. As believers, we give ultimate allegiance, not to the empire of the world round about us, but to God. And there's a few things that we do and that we share together. One of them this morning, the songs we sing. You know, Jesus is my king. How many times did we sing that line? That's subversive. That's dangerous. In some countries, if you sing that and live that, it could cost you. That's like the, the believers in Rome. You know, Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is my Lord. Baptism is a sign that I'm not part of this world anymore, isn't it? You just baptized people recently. Isn't that great? Down into the water, the old life dies. Rise to a new life. Not part of that world anymore, but a follower of Jesus. Communion is about new life in God. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us how to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Which is saying, not the kingdom of the world come and its will be done, but but now my allegiance is different. Do you realize how dangerous this is? How subversive this is? This is anti-empire. This is us. It's exciting. It's important to see what it really is. So let's remember whose we are and who we are, our true identity and place. We give our allegiance to Jesus and we see ourselves differently. We're children of God, children of the promises of God, who live by the gift of God, 
not the promises and gift of the world round about us. And God gives us what the empire of the world round about us can never give. We no longer need all that stuff, the benefits the empire offers. We don't need the consumerism and the militarism and the measures of success that the world offers because our lives are different. We're set free from all of that. And so I want to finish with some seven quick pointers for, for God's people living in Babylon, living in the world, but not belonging to it. The first one is, don't be afraid. As God's children, we are seen, or will be seen, or can be seen, as a threat to the world round about us, and it can be a dangerous place to be. But don't be afraid. Fear cripples, where confidence in God liberates and sets free. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Yeah. Stand and see the salvation of God. Don't be afraid. God is with us. And the second thing is we have to leave. That passage in Revelation talked about come out from them. We have to leave Babylon, leave the empire. And leaving's not always easy. But leaving is a declaration of my trust and confidence is in God and I'm willing to leave and leave that behind. And we can't be like the children of Israel who left Egypt and then a while later, oh, we want to go back. <laughs> yeah. And then thirdly, pray. Pray for the city like Jeremiah told the exiles. Pray for Babylon. Pray that it prospers. Pray God's blessing on it. Like Jesus taught us, pray for the coming of his kingdom, his will being done. And then fourthly, speak the truth to power. Like Moses said to Pharaoh. Brave thing to do, wasn't it? To rock up to Pharaoh, the strongest most powerful person in the whole known world, and say, let my people go. Like Martin Luther King, who exposed the ugliness and evil of racism to his nation, spoke the truth to power. Like Wirimu Tamihana, one of my heroes, an outstanding Christian leader in those early colonial days, a wonderful Christian man who formed communities of Christians and built villages of Christian people living together, a man of peace, who negotiated with Governor Brown and Governor Gray, spoke truth to them, even though they very seldom listened to him. We're called to be willing to speak up, to be brave and speak the truth to power. And we're called to, to be people of love, fifthly, who don't take sides, join arguments, but we follow that excellent, more excellent way that Paul talked about, the way of love where hospitality and forgiveness and generosity are hallmarks of our life together because we serve a different king. And sixthly, God calls us to be bold and adventurous, to be daring, to imagine a different world, a different community, things working differently under the lordship of Jesus. Don't be afraid to dream new dreams, good dreams, big dreams, because a new world is coming. We can accommodate the empire, live in it, but live for the kingdom of God. And my last point, sing a new song. I think we need two songs. First is a song of lament. There are many laments in the Bible. We tend to gloss over them in our Western culture. We, we want the celebration, not the tears. But the, the Bible people had much to be sad about. And I think, in actual fact, there's lots to bring us to tears if we stop and think about it. The world that we live in and the stuff that's going on and going down around the place. What do you think could move us to tears before God? Have a think about that. 
And I want to say to you, don't be afraid of tears. Care enough to weep. Care enough to be moved to tears. God takes notice of tears. They're important to God. He heard the cry of the slaves in Egypt. He heard Hannah's cry when she was barren. Nehemiah wept and prayed for three days. Esther wept when she heard about the plot to kill all her people. The exiles by the rivers of Babylon, they wept. And Jesus wept, you know. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. And he wept as he came into Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers his chicks. But you would not. But you wouldn't. You know, in each case, the tears were a precursor for something supernatural, an intervention of God. So don't be afraid of tears. I think we need more tears, actually. We need to find a place to sit and weep like the exiles in Babylon. Turn our hearts and minds to Zion, the city of our God, the new Jerusalem and his kingdom. Turn from the false gods of empire, from our materialistic, consumer-driven, autonomous, greedy, self-indulgent kind of world. Turn our hearts away from that to the kingdom of God. And if you listen, you'll hear God calling you, calling you to be a citizen of heaven, not of this world, a citizen of his kingdom, no longer finding your home here, but becoming an alien, a stranger here, because your heart lies elsewhere. And then there's a new song. Ask God for a new song. Psalms talks a lot about a new song, and, and new songs always accompany new things that God is doing. A number of times in Psalms it talks about singing a new song to the Lord. In Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a wonderful song of praise and victory. Walter Brueggemann, a wonderful Old Testament scholar, says that the church is at its most creative and its most dangerous when it sings a new song. So let's be creative and let's be dangerous. And let's leave the songs of the world. Leave the empire behind us. And like the exiles by the rivers in Babylon, let's sing a new song to the Lord. I want to finish with quoting you a psalm. I'm trying hard to memorise this at the moment. I think this sums it up. When, when the Lord brought his exiles back to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for his people. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Like streams renewed the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go out to plant the seed. But they sing as they return with the harvest. I want to say to you folks gathered here this morning, maybe God is calling us to be willing to weep and to break the power of empire, to separate ourselves from it, to weep, so that then we're set free to sing a new song of freedom and liberation, of glory to God the songs of Zion. Can I pray? 
Lord, this backstory to the whole of the Bible is our story too. We live in a world that wants to capture our hearts and claim our allegiance and our loyalty. And it's happy for us to serve you or any other God on the side as long as it has, its ulti- it has our ultimate allegiance. Lord, you call us to be people who march to the beat of a different drum, who follow you and are willing to pay the price of being different, willing to pay the price of being named as your son, your daughter, your child. Lord, I pray for this church and for me and our city. Lord, that your people will be people who are willing to weep and look to you for the new song that you want us to sing. A song that's creative, a song that's dangerous, and a song that brings life and freedom and sets the captives free. Thank you, Lord. Amen.